Hey everybody, welcome into the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs, an exclusive home of Cubs Checking. I'm here, Tony Andrecki, with Andy Martinez and Tim Stebbins. So guys, Cubs convention just wrapped up. Uh, there's a lot to take away. Obviously, the Cubs made their first big league moves just in the mere hours before the convention started. But so we had the Shota and Managa press conference. Michael Bush was actually at Cubs convention, which I was pretty surprised at. Uh, Yancy Almonte was there too. Uh, wait, did I say that right? Yeah, Yancy yeah, okay. Um So there was all these moves. We got to meet some of these guys. We got to talk to them, see how they fit, all of this kind of stuff. But I think there was one name that we heard at the convention uh, that wasn't there. Cody Bellinger, his name kind of echoed throughout every corner of the convention. So there's a lot to talk about. We'll get into all of that. But Andy, I want to tee you up first. What was one of your main takeaways from this weekend, from everything, from, like we said, from signings to just the convention itself to the Bellinger aspect of it all? Yeah, I mean, to me, it was the Bellinger aspect. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without a Cody chant breaking out, right? From the get-go, Tom Ricketts' opening uh, ceremony or opening statement, whatever you want to call it, the Cody chant started right away. Um, when when Jed Hoyer and and Carter Hawkins were on off the mound with Ryan Dempster, it was Cody chance, Cody chance. The next morning, the second question that uh, Jed Hoyer and Carter Hawkins face from a fan is about Cody Ballinger. Then Dansby Swanson talks about before we get to 2024, we need to re-sign Cody Ballinger. Which was a strong statement. That is a very yeah. strong statement from from a, one of the figureheads of the Chicago Cubs. It was just it permeated everything that was going on. It was all about Cody Ballinger. It was all about Cody Ballinger, and. I know we'll get into it a little bit more, but I, I totally understand the sentiment. There's been these moves. The the shell is getting the shell of a good team is starting to build. Now you're looking for that for that cherry on top, almost uh, to sort of say. Tim, what did you think? What stood out to you from the weekend? Yeah, I mean, I'll Bellinger. Obviously, I'll add to that. We were sitting there Saturday at the opening panel, the front office, and a fan came in, sat down around up where we were sitting as media, and joked to the people that he was joining in the group. Did we signed Bellinger yet? Did I miss anything? And they're like, no, no, no. So, like, yeah, Andy's right. You couldn't go anywhere without it. And um, I kind of pair that with what Jed had to say Friday when he talked about we're not done with our offseason by any stretch. I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? Like, yeah, uh, they made two moves, as you said, in the, the days ahead of Cubs convention. But um, we know this guy is still out there. It's kind of a presence hanging over the offseason, I think. Like, until his free agency is settled, like, that connection is still going to be uh, made in fans' minds and in anyone's mind, I think, just because of how big of an impact he had last year. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I, I do think um, – I was surprised, I think, by how much Bellinger, his, like, ghost was throughout the Cubs convention just because I, I, of course, knew that Jed was going to be asked about him by reporters specifically at, like, the media social on Friday. But then, you know, and I'm not surprised that fans were, like, chanting or asking about him, but how often they were chanting yeah. and, and talking and – uh, asking questions about him and you know the fact that like he had such a giant presence um, it, you know I, it was it was interesting to me all of that uh, a couple different thoughts though from it so one if I'm Cody Bellinger I already know what it's like to play here I already know that I love Wrigley or love the staff love the team which by all accounts he did he even said as much himself I'm sure he loved time in LA too especially if he's hitting 300 with you know 25 bombs in the good seasons I'm sure he loved that and the fans and all that too but, like, if you see that, wouldn't that make you want to sign just a little bit more? I'm not saying take less money, but, like, wouldn't you be a little bit more motivated to come back here just because you see how much this city, this fan base wants you? So I thought that would be really interesting, and I tried to 
it like it got me to think like if I put myself in Bellinger's shoes, would that affect my free agency process? I think it would a little bit. I've never been in the situation where I might have 160 or 250 million or whatever else. I don't I don't get that kind of opportunity. Right, right. So I don't know, and and, it, and the money still has to be there. The years have to be there. The the stuff on paper has to be there for Bellinger for sure. But like. The Cubs want him. I think the Cubs need him more than any other team in Major League Baseball. And it sure seems like the fan base wants him. So I think that's really interesting. And then the Dansby aspect, too, of, like, Dansby said towards the end of the season that he's going to be in Jed's ear. Jed joked that he was going to get a cubicle and, like, wear khakis around the office and stuff. And Dansby said that he's been talking to Jed quite a bit, like, you know, throughout the offseason, wanting to know what the plan is, giving his own thoughts and inputs, too. So for him, the most outspoken player on the roster, the guy that's here for seven years, the biggest contract, leader of the team in a lot of ways and all that, that for him to, to make a strong statement knowing exactly what that is, like Dansby's smart. He knew what would come from that. I thought that was a strong statement too. So like there's all these different wrinkles that, that were like bouncing through my head as all of this Bellinger stuff was happening for a guy who wasn't even there. Right. Yeah, and it's one thing to, to uh, that I thought too was like if I'm Scott Boris, like – I'm adding to my slideshows or video presentation, like whatever I'm presenting to the Cubs. Like I have video from CubsCon from Dansby Swanson. Like I have more yeah. ammo uh, to, to use for the Chicago Cubs. But the one thing that, and I wrote about this on MarquisSportsNetwork.com, the one thing we've always known about Jed Hoyer is like he works, first of all, he works in silence, right? Like he's not going to be out there and saying like, we're going to do everything to, to get Ballinger back. That's just not his style at all. He has never operated like that. I He's not going to budge from what he perceives as a good deal. He's mentioned it as much over the weekend saying, you know, he's not going to make a deal just to make a deal. Like, he still wants to make a good deal for the Cubs and for the organization. And I think the longer that this plays out, the better it is for the Chicago Cubs. I mean, I think if you would have told me at the beginning of the season what were the odds that Cody Bellinger came back, I probably would have put it at, like, maybe like 15 to 20%. I was not very optimistic at all about Cody Bellinger coming back to the Cubs, just given – the Yankees were, were looking for, for uh, a left-handed bat. The Blue Jays were looking. The Giants were looking. All these teams have kind of made sense. And as if they've started to seemingly drop off, it just doesn't it, – it's felt like it's getting better and better for the Cubs. Mm. Now, when does – when does what side blinks first is what, at the stage we're at? Does Jed Hoyer blink first? Does Scott Boris and Cody Bellinger blink first? Do the, the, does the gap start narrowing maybe a little bit that come, I don't know, February 1st or, or, or pitchers and catchers reporting a deal gets done – that's to me the biggest question right now. Like, what kind of when when does someone start blinking? When does a, a deal start getting close to done? Because it's the two sides that make the most logical sense. Like, could San Francisco come in and make a deal theoretically? Yes. Could Seattle theoretically? Yes. Could Toronto still come in theoretically? Yes. Like, all these teams theoretically could, but I don't think the need and the the fit makes as much sense as anywhere else between the Cubs and, and Cody Bellinger. I do think like whatever this counts for, Judd's done a. I think he's done a good job with, like, the public, like, what he says to the public about this. Like, Friday, I'll quote this. He said, I think the world of Cody, obviously, he's had a, he had a great year here. And even beyond having a great year for us, he really ingratiated himself well with the city, the fan base, the players. The players really think highly of him. We know that. And he knows that I think highly of him. None of that has changed at all. So, like, we keep talking about how good this fit is. And, and in terms of, you know, negotiating through the public, we know Jed is – I don't think the Cubs do that. He's – I feel like they've talked about that in recent years, but I, I think he's done a good job in that aspect of just as far as the public's concerned is Jed's making it clear, like, yeah, we like him. And it's, as you're saying, it's which side kind of comes closer to the middle first. Yeah, I think um, 
Indy, I've always been more optimistic than you, I think, on yeah. Bellinger returning to the Cubs or from the start anything, of the year. Honestly, let's be honest here. Yeah, <laughs> just a your negative Andy is what we call them, guys, off the podcast. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I've just been optimistic about it because of all these def- other aspects. Like, I thought the Giants were the team, and I've been saying this on the podcast since the beginning of the offseason, even before the offseason. The Giants, to me, seemed like a team that would go out and get a star. Then they signed Lee, the, the Korean outfielder. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, they, they obviously filled center field. They, they invested a lot of money in that. doesn't mean that Bellinger can't go there, that they wouldn't spend money. You know, he can first base, DH. There's no guarantee Lee sticks in center field, whatever. Uh, Bellinger, obviously, has also played right field in his career. But I think it's just the fact that, like, there are a lot of question marks. If you're looking at it from I, – I, I spend a lot of time thinking and, like, okay, if I'm the Giants or the Blue Jays or whatever, would you want to devote more than the Nimmo contract and the $162 million or whatever it was exactly that he got, which Bellinger should get more than that, but maybe still under 250 I don't know what the, where this ends up. Would you want to commit that for six years, for eight years or whatever, to a guy who had three really tough seasons? Was it all injury? Was yep. it – was it all swing changes? There's there's all the stuff about the the um, peripheral numbers from even 2023 where it's like, okay, he wasn't hitting the ball that hard. His exit velo wasn't that good. There were all these numbers that are like his expected slugging was, you know, all this stuff is like, okay, well, that's not as good. Whereas like Matt Chapman <coughs> was the opposite. Like his expected slugging and all of his expected numbers should have been higher, his exit velo, et cetera. So it's like there's enough that would give me pause if I'm another team. The Cubs, there's not enough to give them pause, or at least I don't think so. Like, because they know how all of this happened. They right. know the changes. They know how he had the comeback year that he had where he won comeback player of the year by two different outlets. They know all of that. They know the value that he brings to them, even off the field, that, that he brings in the clubhouse. But then also on the field, even on days where he doesn't hit, he's, his ability to play center field and first base and even DH and move seamlessly between those where the Cubs do not have, as of yet, anybody locked into those spots is huge. And then the left-handed aspect that I've been beating the drum on all winter as well. The Cubs need that. They don't have that long term, and they don't have left-handed power. Like Owen Casey's the one guy coming up through the system, but he doesn't even have a position. But there's no guarantee that he fits either. PCA right. is a good left-handed bat, not necessarily a power guy. At least we don't know exactly how how he'll fit, or even how he'll fare at all in Major League Baseball. So it just makes a lot of sense. Where like if one team's going to spend maybe the most on Bellinger, it would be the Cubs. So that's why I feel optimistic about it. I feel honestly a little more optimistic this weekend, but I think that's a really good point, Andy, that you said is like Scott Boris has a really good, uh, some some more uh, juice, I guess, to add to their side of like, well, you guys need him. Like, the, look at the public; you want to appease your fans, all that kind of stuff. So there's there's like a lot that that goes into this, and there's more wrinkles just added from convention, which I think is is kind of hilarious, actually. And all throughout the weekend, it wasn't just fans that were chanting his name but like the players were talking about just how, how good he was as a teammate right pca mentioned how like he went up to him and like uh he saw him get his work in every day or or justin seal mentioned like how he was one of the hardest workers I believe jameson town was on uh fair to uh, foul territory excuse me over uh, right before cups convention mentioned how like no one works harder than him and and i like it's just like different all these different things that you don't ever know about a player until you actually get to work with them, right? Like, the Giants don't necessarily know that. The players don't know that firsthand. And they might see this, but you hear that about a lot of other people. Well, mm-hmm. the Cubs actually saw that firsthand and experienced that, that they know, like, all right, he's going to bring in an A-plus work ethic. He's going to go in there and help the new guys out. He's going to help these prospects that you got coming up, teaching them how to be a major leaguer, teaching them how to 
do the things the right way so you can continue to have success from the minor leagues into the major leagues. Like I think all those intangibles are just as valuable as if he puts up a 125 WRC plus or if he hits 25 home runs. Like those are equally as valuable and maybe don't get uh, credited for in a contract, but definitely um, go into an into account for sure. I think the right hitting right-handed pitching thing. Like Jed talked about it. Like in terms of how they have more moves to make. Like you, you have a good point there, Tony. I think around last year they were around league average against right-handed pitching, at least by like WRC plus. But right now, as you look at who's there, it's like I think it's five lefty bats on the forty-man roster, and two of those are PCA Matt Mervis. Those guys are you know unproven prospects at this point still, right. and very likely, or at least possibly not on the opening day roster either. Those guys. Yeah, and then I mean even Michael Bush, small sample size in the major leagues. Uh, Miles Mastroboni, that's you know with the power dynamic that you talk about. That's not there, uh, and that's on his. I guess Arsenal um, and Talkman. Talkman, exactly. So that's huge to me. And half the switch hitter, but still, I know, yeah. So when they're talking about like that being a focus, it makes sense because sure, last year you were around league average, but how do you? What, what are you going to be this year? Right now, if you were to try to map it out, like I'm not saying that they're going to all of a sudden just drop off a cliff, and I don't want to project them to be suddenly terrible against righties, but it wouldn't hurt to add that's for sure. And, and Bellinger, I think, is. But he's sitting out there, as we keep talking about, that's such an easy avenue, and an obvious avenue at least. Yeah, it is, and there's just not too many other options still to address against specifically right-handed pitching. So I think one thing that I found interesting was just the fact that Jed has said that throughout the offseason, we need to do better against right-handed pitching. But like to say it even again, to reiterate it again on Friday at the media session, uh, that we need to, to improve against right-handed pitching when there aren't too many options. I mean, there's essentially like Bellinger and Brandon Belt, and maybe there's one other guy that like doesn't just come to mind right now in terms of free agency. Right. But like that, other than that, it's like trade. There's no other way that you can directly impact it. Maybe you sign that guy like JD Martinez, who's you know an aging veteran uh, to be your DH, but like he's still a right-handed hitter. Yeah, he crushes righties too, but like. And I think that creates more roster question marks than answers. If you get a guy who's just a D. Right. That, yeah. that, that creates problems for Michael Bush. That creates problems for Chris Morrell. Like, yeah. I don't think that would make sense. If if his market creators and a, a deal monetarily makes sense for the Chicago Cubs, then maybe, yeah, for sure, J.D. Martinez. But I don't know if yeah. that's the kind of answer that you want. Well, right. And, yeah, and, and back to Tim's point, like, if you lose Bellinger – Bellinger from last year's lineup, unless Michael Bush has a Cody Bellinger-like season, which is putting way too much pressure right. and expectations on him, you're not anticipating you're going to have a better season against righties this year, you know, unless you bring Bellinger back, unless you figure these things out. So, yeah, so there's all these things to keep in mind for sure, but I do think it's a strong statement from Jed, and, and even Council said it as well, that we need to improve against right-handed pitching, um, and I'm sure that's something that Council has been saying in, in, in Jed's ear about as well. So um, definitely, like, interesting to see how the next maybe month I, I don't know there's no rush for Bellinger to sign it's the rest of his life the rest of his career he's not going to rush it I don't think the Cubs have any need to rush it either um, obviously they can figure it out in spring training and stuff and go from there but you know I, I do think that signing Shota Imanaga was a really important signing in a lot of ways too it basically means that they don't have to go get a starter now they don't even have to address the rotation which I think is, is important they they fill Marcus Stroman with a guy that MLB trade rumors thought was, you know, projected as uh, the better free agent than Stroman. Imanaga is three years younger than Stroman. Uh, I think there's maybe there's certainly more question marks, but there's more upside as well. So I think it's very possible that the Cubs rotation going into 24, either at the start or by midseason, 
looks better than it did throughout 2023, which I think is an important signing from Imanaga. But Tim, I'll start with you here. Like, what did you take away from his press conference, despite the fact that like he endeared himself to, to fans with, with just speaking English and, and seeming to have like a good uh, way about him, a good personality there? Yeah, I mean, that was the first thing I was going to say. I mean, he knows how to win a press conference for yeah. sure. And I, I, I thought it was kind of cool the Cubs had season ticket holders be able to sit in on that. And I thought that was the reception you heard when he, he opened that press conference and the reaction. Like, that, that was that was a nice way to welcome him. It was not Tim cheering. I can, I can it, it was not me. Yeah. The series over the here is just, yeah. just probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll just stop there. <laughs> I think one thing that resonated with me was he talked about, like, in his meetings with Jed and Carter, he wanted to, you know, for one, they had they, they talked about the player he could become. Like he he seems someone who's very motivated, right? We know he had a lot of success and pedigree in Japan, but I guess I think one thing it seems he was looking for in his process was somewhere that could keep making him take him another level in baseball. I mean, he's he's around thirty years old already. You know, he's pitched for a long time in, in Japan, but uh, he wants to keep getting better. And I think as a team, that's what you want to hear, right? Like you want someone like that who. Uh, you can add to your rotation, and you know what they've done there, and hope it translates. But what what does he have potentially more to unlock once you get him into your infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Like the pitching philosopher matched with the professor. Uh, he seems like a really smart guy. Like by all accounts, uh, it was. I thought the reception too from the fans at opening ceremonies is pretty cool with him. But yeah, I just. I mean, it, it's a super interesting and complex contract. I've never seen anything like either, yeah. so I couldn't even break it down or provide any analysis on it because, you know, he could opt out after a couple of years, but the Cubs could also kind of opt out of the deal. There's a lot of different ways out, but it seems most likely that he would stick around for about four years and make about $53 million with the potential for more. Uh, seems like a guy that, that definitely, yeah, it, there is that upside. There is that unknown aspect of it all. And I'm just curious to see how this plays out with him in the rotation. Yeah, and, and one thing I uh, to kind of circle back to Bellinger in a little way on this was like uh, there was a lot of rumors early on with Shota Imanaga about his contract, right? It was like the number 100 million was floated around yeah. easily multiple times. And I think at that number, it would have seemed really unlikely that the Cubs would have gone in on him. And... As the deadline approached, because he had a deadline on he needed to sign before the 45 days, as that deadline approached, it seemed like the Cubs were kind of getting involved. I'm not trying to say like like the, the Cubs stuck to their number and, and didn't negotiate in any way, but clearly they had their their figure in mind. And when things when push came to shove, the Cubs were able to get the deal done. Maybe some similarity there in, in a little bit for the, for, the, for the Bellinger and Cubs talks, right, where it's like there's maybe they have their number, but they're willing to, to budge when things – maybe start getting moving maybe there's some similarities there but yeah to your point about him being the pitching philosopher I thought that was to me the most interesting thing he seems like he's going to fit in seamlessly with guys like Jameson Tile Tommy Hadovy Daniel Moscos Kyle Hendricks guys like that that are going to work they're going to talk shop they're going to talk the game they're going to have their their ideas on like this is what we should be doing in this situation and and this is how we should be like there's just going to be a lot of interesting conversations that's to be a fly on the wall in those meetings, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's a it's a really really good fit. It gives some cushion to me. More importantly, to some of these young arms, yeah. like a Hayden Wesneski, like a Cade Horton, like a Ben Brown, like a Javier Assad, Jordan Wicks. There's not as much pressure on them that like, hey, you're going to have to be a opening day starter, and you're going to have to be a starter for a 162 season. Like, there's a little bit less pressure of that. Where it's like, all right, if you play well and you're or you pitch one spring and you make the team, and you're you're able to to start some games good but there's no pressure on like you have to be a three five guy your first go around in the major leagues i think that creates a little bit more of a cushion for for the cubs young pitching 
Well, we also know, too, that you're not getting through a 162 with five stars. Right. We, right. we yeah, know that. For sure. I think, like, the fact, for one, like, you lose Stroman, and, and when healthy, you know what he contributed last year. You had to replace him with at least, I, I think, a proven arm. But now, like, you talk about the depth there, all those guys, those young pitchers you rattled off. Like, I think we saw signs last year. Javier Saad pitched very well uh, and more opportunities. You got Jordan Wicks came up, and in that, that one-month sample, looked really good, right? So I think it, you kind of saw some – you know, they're still young, I get it, but you saw some early signs of trust from young pitchers, and now you don't necessarily have to lean on them, as you're saying, but there's there's optimism. I would think that if they have to step in, if they're not already in the rotation, that there's maybe a baseline expectation of what they could give you. Yeah, I mean, Wesneski won the fifth starter job out of spring, too, which feels like so long ago, but at, at this point a year ago, we were like, oh, well, Wesneski's probably in the rotation to start, and maybe a long-term piece for them. I mean, remember we did the bold predictions, and I said he starts opening day for the Cubs at some point. Like, that seems far off now, but it's not a guy that they're going to give up on, nor is there any reason the Cubs should give up on Hayden Wesneski. So, yeah, I, I agree. Like, it provides cover, and Tim, your point, for sure. I mean, the Cubs started 11 or, 11 or 12 different pitchers last year. Some of those were openers. I think Jose Quas started one, and Michael Fulmer started right. one. But still, like, they needed nine true starters then throughout it. They have 10 right now when you include Horn and Ben Brown, uh, among all the other guys that we just mentioned, and Drew Smiley's around. And I think it probably, the Cubs probably start with Drew Smiley in the rotation. I think that makes sense when you consider the fact that, okay, you're paying him 10, 10 and a half million dollars. He was good out of the bullpen, but like, I still anticipate that they will sign a left-handed reliever, maybe even multiple this year. Uh, and I think you, you let the younger guys either figure it out in the bullpen, maybe like Wesneski or Asad do, but you let them figure it out in AAA or just like really make sure that they're that everything is right, that Jordan Wicks, what he learned in that month sample size, he goes and, and figures that out and, and applies that to, to AAA, makes some adjustments, comes back and is maybe even better than he was. So I think you do all of that and, and that's the way to do it is like if you want to compete for the division, you don't start the year with like a giant question mark at four and five in your rotation. Yeah, and, and with Drew Smiley too, I think it's important to note like it's always easier to stretch a guy out at the beginning and then yeah. work it down than opposed to like a come April 15th or whatever, you're like, oh, we need another long guy. Well, let's stretch Drew Smiley out. Like there's just not the opportunity to do that. So being able to stretch him out in spring, whether that means in the rotation or as a reliever or whatever, you want that cover of being able to pitch multiple innings. All right, we're going to take a quick break here in the Cubs Weekly Podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk about Michael Bush, where his fit is with the Cubs after they traded for him. And then also young guys, Christopher Morrell, PCA, and what we learned about them at the convention this week. You've got the jersey, the ball cap, the foam finger. Everyone can see you're a Chicago Cubs fan from a mile away. Ready to take your look to the next level? Upgrade your wallet with an exclusive Cubs debit card, which you can get when you open a Wintrust Cubs checking account. With no monthly fees, free ATMs nationwide, and a $300 bonus when you open your account. Start showing your Cubs pride with every purchase. Sign up at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. Only $100 required to open. No monthly minimum balance and no monthly maintenance fees. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Everybody, welcome back to the Cubs Weekly Podcast. Tony here with Andy and Tim. And uh, super frigid week out here, I know, in Chicago. It was pretty cold and snowy over the weekend. But inside the, the hotel, the Sheridan Grand Chicago, I think it was warm in the sense like we learned. Um, well, it was warm because there's always a lot of Cubs fans. It was right. actually like legitimately warm. But it was warm, I think, just in the future of the first base position, which I wasn't in- anticipating. When the Cubs traded for Michael Bush, I was like, okay, he played third. His main position was second in, in the Dodgers system. 
Cubs look at him as a first baseman. I thought that was a little interesting. He hasn't. He doesn't have a ton of experience in pro ball playing first base. It seems like the Dodgers probably identified that that's his best position too, maybe, and that they have Freddie Freeman locked up there. Mookie Betts is playing second. Whatever. They they unload him. They get a young pitcher, Jackson Ferris, in return. But I think the Cubs have identified now a first baseman, which has some ripple effects. You, Tim, you mentioned Matt Mervis. Seems like the belief in Matt Mervis is even lower than than we thought. If you know, it doesn't seem like he's going to get a shot. Michael Bush, who has not performed at the big league level, I mean, his numbers I think are even worse than Mervis's. Much smaller sample size, but still, they're gonna. It seems like he has every opportunity to win the first base job out of spring. So, Tim, we'll start with you. Just what was your reaction to that with Bush and, and how he fits in here with this Cubs team? Well, you heard like on the rumor mill the the Reese Hoskins thrown around a lot, right? And yeah, as a first baseman coming off uh, you know missed season with injury, a potential pillow contract like that that was something out there but I think there's some there's a there's a lot potentially here that the Cubs just got Michael Bush they obviously had to give up Jackson Ferris in that trade that's a well-regarded prospect who was lower in the system but as you're saying like I think when you to me the Dodgers when you're if you see a team trade of the Dodgers there's kind of a level of apprehension like the Dodgers are a very well-run organization obviously but I think it's to your point like Jason Hayward's back in LA so Mookie Betts is going to play more second you have Freeman Muncie so Michael Bush was just blocked. I think that's just kind of the bottom line. And for the Cubs, this is just a really good trade that has a lot of potential. And I honestly did not know this until Michael Bush, we met him on Saturday and discussed it. He played 158 games in college at first at North Carolina. So when I see him in the big leagues and professional, like I think he's played, you know, less than 50 games at first base, at least in the minor leagues. But yeah. this is someone that it, my, my impressions were way off. Like I think this could this is something that should be – very familiar for him and we know as a lefty hitter as we've talked about that that's something they need and uh he was a top prospect like i'm very curious to see that what this he still guy, is a top prospect yeah, yeah. he still is so you're adding that and the potential what does that look like we know that you know the, you don't want to put too much expectations on someone but there's a lot of pedigree here that the cubs are getting this was a guy who was being talked about in dylan cease rumors right there was and and ken rosenthal i think put it out there that it was he was in conversations with the White Sox, or in conversations between the Dodgers and White Sox for a Dylan Cease trade. So, like, this wasn't, this isn't just like a, a prospect that you like throw in, and they were like, this is a, a big, big, big name, a top consensus top 100 prospect who they hope he can man first base, which has been since they traded away Anthony Rizzo, uh, save for two months with Frank Schoenel, has not <laughs> been really like solved by any means so having someone in Michael Bush that you hope can man first base I think is a huge addition to a team that had plenty of questions at first base and at third base you've solved one of those and and that to me doesn't rule out Cody Bellinger but like it, it creates a, a little bit more of a, of a safety net and allows him the opportunity to have that runway I think it was interesting when Jed Hoyer said like it's not often you're blocked by three Hall of Famers right like and you're like that's not that's not a situation where like Oh, you know, he's blocked by a really good first base. Like, no, no, he's blocked by, like, Freddie Freeman, who's a Hall of Famer. He's blocked by Mookie Betts, who's a Hall of Famer. Like, those. Who's the third? Uh, yeah, that's, I was trying to think Sh- who the third DH. Shohei at DH. Oh. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that would make sense. I was like, it's not Max Muncy. It's I, Jason that's, so I kept thinking Max Muncy. But yeah, like, that's the thing is, like, oh, you're, duh, you're, yeah. you're blocked by really, really good. Like, unless he somehow, unless he hits, like, 80 home runs at AAA, like, he was not going to surplant one of those guys. And even then, he would probably not have the runway. This is a really good opportunity for both sides, and it shows the kind of creativity that you need to do in the offseason, right? Like, Reese Hoskins, to me, made a lot of sense, and it was like, when's that going to get done? Well, maybe things weren't moving the way they wanted, and now they were able to go out and 
go through the trade market, which has a little bit more control, and and uh, answer the first base question that way. Yeah, and it, lefty bat, like you mentioned too, Tim. I mean, that's we've been talking so much about on this pod and other pods. The Cubs needed that, uh, and a guy under team control. He he's a little bit older prospect. He's twenty six already, but six full years of team control. I mean, he could if it works out, he could be around for for a while. And yeah, the fact that he already is a consensus top prospect. I mean, he ranked higher on prospect list than Matt Mervis ever did. I, you know, I do think that that's interesting. Their numbers, obviously, in the minor leagues are somewhat comparable in that they both lit the world on fire, even at AAA. Uh, Bush, I think, was the Dodgers minor league player of the year this past mm-hmm. year in 2023. I mean, he was he was really, really good. Um, looks like a good hitter. Looks like a guy that they feel like is big league ready. I think Council said it best on Friday that like there's he has nothing left to prove in the minor leagues. So it seems like Bush is going to have every opportunity to not only make the opening day, but be in the opening day lineup for the Cubs at first base. Um, probably probably forming a platoon with Patrick Wisdom unless that guy Cody Bellinger does end up coming back right. but uh but maybe Bellinger's in center if that's the case you know and we'll get to PCA in a little bit here so I, I thought it was just interesting how they they see him fitting um seems like a really intriguing guy even I think there are more intriguing aspects of it than I even thought of when they first signed him it's like oh yeah this certainly seems like a guy to, to take a flyer on and, and see if it pays out but it, it's more pedigree than like the Zach McKinstry and Edwin Rios deals right. that the Cubs have already done you know acquiring left-handed bats from LA that neither of those guys even lasted a calendar year in Chicago so there's more pedigree for this I think um, I think Bush will have more runway to, to, to kind of take off and I, I do think you know an interesting component though is um, is kind of what it does with Christopher Morrell because Morrell never ended up playing first base at all in the winter league. He obviously worked on it. He could still work on it in spring training, but he's never really played over there. He could be part of the third base picture. Uh, they, there was so much talk at the beginning of the offseason of the Cubs need to figure out what his one position is. Well, Bush throws a little bit more of a wrinkle into that for sure, but now it doesn't seem like the Cubs really care whether they're whether Morrell has one position or plays all over that place. I mean, what was your takeaway from that, Andy? Yeah, I think Craig Council spoke about it over the weekend. Like, it's it's he that versatility might be the most valuable thing, right, where you can play him at third base. You can play him if he does pan out at first base. You can play him at first base. If, say, Suzuki needs a day off, you can play him in the outfield. If uh, Nico Horner needs a day off, he can play at second base. Like, you have that versatility where, depending on the matchup, depending on who needs a day off, depending on all these different factors that we know happen throughout the season, you have that ability to have that plug-and-play player. I think that creates a lot of value and allows them to get flexible. And I think even if you do bring back Bellinger, I think that creates even more flexibility because you could have Bellinger in the outfield, you can have him at first base, you can have Bush get a day off or be in the DH role. Like, There's so much flexibility that starts getting created when you have when you add a Michael Bush, just because he even he can play second base, right? Like you yeah. could, if Nico needs a day off and you're facing a righty, well, Michael Bush could play at second, and you could go uh, with someone, Cody Bellinger, or someone else at first base, PCA in center field, like whatever. You have so many options, and and I think that's just what we've seen Craig Council have success with. We've seen the Cubs have had success with that in the past, being able to mix and match lineups given matchups, given uh, who the opponent's throwing out there. I think that's so much. There's so much value in that, and this creates that while allowing the runway to have Michael Bush playing the major leagues every single day. I think at times this winter, from my seat, we've overcomplicated, or I don't want to say we, but this this issue has been overcomplicated with Christopher Morrell and Carter Hawkins. I thought put it well in his the front office panel Saturday. He got asked first fan question. It was about 
how do you see him fitting in? But that question also talked about, you know, there's loose, there's rumors out there. And to me, it's more loose speculation about Morel's future. And, and Jed just straight up said, like, take rumors with a pound of salt. And yeah. he's talked about how there's rumors why Morel's not here. That's just weekend. a grain of salt, a pound of salt. A pound right. of salt. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. He, he said. <laughs> what was that, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> He, he even said, like, there's there's talk about why he's not here this weekend because of a trade, and obviously the front office isn't going to tell you. Christopher Morrell's not here because we're trading him, and it, that was the scenario, but it's pretty clear that that was not why. It was just travel issues. It was just travel issues. Yeah. Diesel, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Carter said, and he even said, like, you know, I don't want to compare talents because it's not fair to Morrell, but he talked about his time in Cleveland when Jose Ramirez came up and was kind of a guy without a position with Kipnis at second, Lindor, uh, outfield. They had outfielders, so – they figure out a way to play a guy if he's hitting, and that's the, that's the crux of it to me. Christopher Morrell came up in May last year after he started the year in Iowa, and he mashed. And if he's doing that, if he's hitting, you find a way to get that guy in the lineup. And, and as counsel said, like, versatility can be a really good thing. You know, like, where do, where do you need a guy on a given day if, if he can play there at least adequately? As long as he's hitting, there's a lot of value in your lineup there. I think Carter even said that. He's like, in a best-case scenario, we find him a spot. If, if Worst case, he's a DH a lot, right? And I think if, if that's where Christopher Morell is next year and he's hitting, like that's another great bat in your lineup and a game-changing bat, as we've seen uh, in his last two years here. Yeah, it, it's just funny. Like I think that how the narrative has changed without any games being played. I, mean, yeah. I guess he played some in Winter League. But, um, but, yeah, when you go out and acquire a guy like Bush and it throws – a wrench in in a good way into your roster and answer some of the questions. I, I think that's, again, one of the more fascinating components of the Bush trade that I didn't realize even on the day that they initially acquired him. So, um, yeah, I, and, and another thing, too, I think, like going back to convention takeaways is I do wonder how this weekend would have been if we just had to ask, like, PCA and Morrell-type questions or if it was, like, just Bellinger without the Imanaga signing, without the Bush trade, which just happened yeah. in, like, essentially the 48 hours before a convention, I wonder what the mood would have been like with fans and all that. It would have been really interesting because, I mean, the Cubs went, what, two and a half months of the offseason before really making a move, then kind of all happened at once with convention week. From our perspective, it was good because we got to find out, one, we had the Imanaga presser, you know, the whole Ben Zobris thing, choosing the number was cool, but then finding more out about Bush, which which I think, and, and how the Cubs see him fit. And then Amante, by the way, is no, like, throw-in. I mean, this is a guy who had a stellar ERA, uh, I think it was like under two actually two years ago in the 22 season, a whip well under one. Like this is a guy who has had success, had a tougher 2023 season, but like Julian Merriweather was a guy who just showed potential and wasn't able to put it all together and then was one of, if not the most uh, valuable reliever for the Cubs last year. So I think that certainly helps the, the bullpen. But going back to PCA, which we've kind of teased and, and touched on a bit so far in this podcast. Tim, I know, I know you have a story on, on MarqueeSportsNetwork.com about PCA, but where do you see him fitting? What did you kind of learn from Cubs convention about what the Cubs, how, how the Cubs are looking at Pete Crow Armstrong and the center field spot going into 2024 here? Well, Carter Hawkins was, was asked about it, like the concept of if he came up and had a great run after that September promotion. Like like Evan Carter did with the Rangers, yeah. There's probably a lot of talk right now that oh, he's the opening day center fielder. What, what's the what's the view on a guy was the question to Carter when the opposite happens. And, and Carter said that there's still enough that you could take from that sample size. And it's that he has stuff to work on. And Carter Hawkins and PCA both talked about this. PCA has been at the Arizona facility save for a, a month stretch where he went back to California, back home to California this winter. He's been working with Dustin Kelly, who uh, as long as he's been in the Cubs organization, he's had a rapport with. Dustin Kelly was a minor league hitting coordinator. 
Uh, and Carter talked about essentially that they're keeping an open mind on him. Obviously, with more moves to come, we don't know what the roster is going to look like when they break camp or, or even get to camp. But Carter said his ability to make those adjustments, coming to spring training and what it looks like, that's going to play into whether he starts in Iowa or the majors. But Carter said both are on the table. Um, at this point, I think it's just that's I think that's the way you go about it. You keep an open mind on it and you see how he comes in. And we go back to, you know, you guys have probably wrote and talked about this, the, the Anthony Rizzo example. You don't want to compare a prospect to someone who has that much, you know, legacy in Chicago. But just the idea that after Rizzo's first year in the majors with the Padres, when Jed was there in the front office, they, they sat him down and said, obviously, there's adjustments to make. And Rizzo came back in 2012 after being traded to the Cubs and, and had a great year. So mm-hmm. I think that was kind of the blueprint for PCA. It's like you got this taste of the majors, use what you learned, implement it, and come back in the spring and, and implement those adjustments. Yeah, that's that's what Jed Hoyer has mentioned since the end of the season, really. He, he, he specifically mentioned that, like, Anthony Rizzo, he doesn't believe Anthony Rizzo necessarily maybe reaches the levels if he doesn't have those struggles where he's able to get that that mental readjustment and maybe that is the case for PCA but I think like we talked about with the pitchers having a runway where there's not a ton of pressure on you to have to be great from day one I think is huge for PCA and having that that safety net with the Michael Bush now with a Mike Talkman with some of these options allows you to have ease some of the pressure that like come April 1st or I guess March 30th I think is opening day or 29th whatever it is, yeah. whatever opening 20th. day is yeah. um, 20, it gets earlier and earlier every yeah. year but without having to have that pressure of like hey once the season starts you better be a 300 hitter and manning really great def- defensive center field like there's none of that pressure and if he needs to go to Iowa to figure out some things that's also not the end of the world I think creating some of that redundancy and some of that some of that roster depth I think is so valuable to someone like PCA as it is to, to some of the pitchers alright so um, not like actual gun to head but metaphorically gun to your head like what what do you guys think tim i'll start with you do you think pca is on the opening day roster <laughs> it's 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 this is a cop out. i'll start with a cop out as i like of course, to do right. on our platform Shock. it's hard to answer that right now until the cody bellinger question that, is that's answered that, that's how i would answer yeah i think i would say no and i i'm look at no cop out this time Okay. To draw my line of sand. I'd say no <laughs> because I believe Bellinger will be back and they can get him more PCA more time in Iowa. Um, and with you know the starting outfield, if Bellinger's back is half Bellinger Suzuki with Talkman in the picture and uh, Canario, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think they have the guy's not twenty two until three days before opening day. I don't think there's a need to rush this. And if he goes down there and does the Morel thing and lights it up, like you find a way to get that guy up, I would imagine. Uh, same thing. I, I would say no regardless of the Bellinger answer. I think the Mike Talkman uh, pillow, if you want to call it that, I think creates a lot of um, safety net for the for the Cubs where they can allow, hey, Pete, you don't have to be a guy on day one. Figure things out. And if you figure it out in spring, then for sure, maybe he makes opening their roster. But I think you can't really ever trust spring training stats. Like Dansby Swanson was hitting like 077 for yeah. much of spring training. It's like, oh, what's wrong with this guy in the – Nothing was wrong with this guy. And Jock Peterson famously hit like a million home runs in spring training and then struggled to hit a home run when he got to the cup. So, like, you, you need to have some 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 patience with spring training. And I think allowing Pete Carl Armstrong to, to fully develop in, in Iowa for a week, two weeks, a month, whatever it is, I think will be beneficial in the long term. Well, I, I do know one guy. Uh, I guess it's not really a guy. I know one being who thinks that PCA will be in the opening day uh, lineup and leading off is Clerk the Cub. 
during the, oh, yeah, the kids, kids, kids only conference. Conference. Yeah, yeah. which by the way you can check out the entire panel on the marquee sports network app you can check out all the panels from cubs convention a lot of interviews all that stuff is there there's your plug but uh he one of the kids was asked who would have the first home run of the year and Clark LeCub answered PCA and said that PCA might be the first hitter of the year. It might be leading off, which I think was a bold proclamation in a couple yeah. different aspects. Not only would PCA maybe be Clark leading off, more than but us. yeah, maybe he does. Maybe he was like Jed in the Clark suit. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. But like, yeah, I mean, not only would PCA be in the opening day roster, but he would be leading off and would hit a home run before anybody else and lead the season off with a home run a la Ian Happ in uh, 2018. 2018, right, Kyle? 2018. Thank you. Uh, in that first pitch of the season. But regardless, um, I, I agree with you guys completely. I think if Bellinger's back, PCA is almost guaranteed to be in AAA to start the year, even if Belly is not back. I do think that it just makes a lot of sense. The, the fact that you have talking around that Alexander Canario can play some center, even Morell is out there you know, as an option. I just think they give him more time to, to see because the, the long term is what matters. Like They don't need him on March 28th or April 1st, or whatever else. And so th- whatever is best for him long-term, and I do think that that is best for him long-term. So uh, it'll certainly be worth playing out, but like, it, it's I do anticipate PCA will spend a vast majority of 2024 in the big leagues, though. I agree, yeah. I think um, we'll see him in the big leagues more often than not. We'll see him making nice defensive catches, web gem catches in the major leagues, but I do think at least for the Sargent, it probably makes sense to kind of figure it out in, in, in Iowa. I don't think it's really quick. I want to ask you because it's, there's no direct parallel here. Uh, did Rizzo start 2012 in the minors, right? Came up yeah, in June? it was. Uh, what what is it? 26th. June 26th. Okay, I was gonna say I know it was after Memorial Day, but I can't remember when. But yeah, so he, he had about a half a year up. But I mean, he had like 161 in like a, a a month and a half or so sample size to San Diego, exactly like you were saying. Jed's pointing to that. He went back down. Um, you know, and they gave him some stuff to work on. Obviously, then he was traded to Chicago, spent about three months in the minor leagues, came up, and he had his own struggles too. It's not like he like absolutely lit the world on fire in 2012. Like the Evan Carter example with the Rangers is, it's it's pretty rare for a 21 year old to come up, play center field, hit well, and then suddenly be hitting three for a team that ends up winning the World Series. Like that's super rare. That just does not happen most of the time. So the fact that PCA didn't do that and had that level of, of success that Carter did doesn't mean that he's not going to have, like, a good career because, obviously, Andy Rizzo had a very good career here. Yeah, I mean, also, too, like, PCA, you talk about the age, 73 games in AA. His first taste of AA was last year and then 34 in AAA. So, yeah, if you want to, like, just – if I'm going to keep making these comparisons that shouldn't have direct parallels, like Michael Bush is a different scenario than a 21-year-old where there's maybe not left much left to conquer in the minors versus a guy who's still only 21. Yeah, I, I will say, I mean, PCA seems like – pretty confident in himself very confident in himself i would say and even self-deprecating like on that kids only panel he was joking that he'd be like ah, it'd be awesome if my first hit in the big leagues was a home run like especially <laughs> a lead off homer to lead off the year like he was joking around the fact that he didn't get a hit in his 17 game at bats or whatever that he had uh in the majors to, to finish the season so yeah we'll see how this plays out plenty more to talk about here on the cubs weekly podcast in the ensuing weeks but that'll do it for this edition for tim and andy i'm tony here thanks as always for listening and check out all of our podcasts on the Marquee Sports Network app. And head to marqueesportsnetwork.com for more information and to read Tim's awesome story on PCA.